All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus. We're going to be looking at the very last verse of uh, chapter 1, Exodus 1, 22, and then all of chapter 2 of Exodus. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, He said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we... uh, Look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, as always, we pause to ask you for your help. That you would be here with us. 
And God, we don't pray because it's the customary thing to do to give appropriate space between reading the Bible and preaching, but because we need you. Father, we need you to be at work or this will be in vain. But you make great promises to your people that you speak. And so we pray that you would do that tonight and that you would um, speak in spite of our sin and our, uh, our ears that are prone to not hear. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to start uh, tonight by giving you uh, just a little bit about RUF, our philosophy of ministry. Now, it's not going to be much. I know that sounds probably incredibly nerdy, uh, and it, it's only slightly nerdy, but it has a point. RUF, our philosophy of ministry, basically that just means the way that we uh, approach doing ministry, right? How do you do what you do on campus? Uh, involved in our, our philosophy of ministry, we have six what we call presuppositions. Basically, it's six things that we, um, that we presuppose, right, that we assume to be true as we head out onto campus. Okay? And one of those presuppositions is this. I'm going to give it to you tonight. It's a little bit of the secret sauce. Here it is. God is at work. How about that? That's it. That seems probably really simple, and it is. It's very simple. And at the same time, it is immensely profound. God is at work. Uh, This is probably the the presupposition, the thing that um, campus ministers, when they get together and and begin to talk about... um, how they're doing on campus and what they're doing on campus, this is probably the one that gets talked about the most. Because I think it's the one that is the most encouraging, right? The fact that God is at work, it's the one that gives gives me as a campus minister the confidence to walk out on the campus and and do anything, to, to approach anybody. Uh, It's the one that helps me sleep at night when I screw something up. And when I wonder, have I I destroyed it? It's been here for 20 years. Am I going to be the reason that it goes down the drain? Right? I can go to bed at night because God is at work. This semester... And we're only uh, two weeks into it, but this semester we're studying through the book of Exodus. And our theme, every week we're saying that, that Exodus is the pattern of salvation. That is to say that what we see in Exodus, the way that God brings about this great salvation of his people, Israel, from Egypt, the way that he saves in Exodus is the way that he saves throughout all of time. And so as we look at this great story... And as we dive in and look at, uh, at, at various parts of it, we can learn a great deal about what it looks like to be saved by God. What does salvation look like? And tonight, what I want you to see is that what I want you to know about God's salvation is that in God's salvation, God is at work. He's the primary actor, so to speak, in salvation. God is at work. 
And so we're going to look at three things along those lines tonight. First, we're going to see that God's at work even when we can't see it. Secondly, we'll see that God is at work even through sin and failure. Thirdly, we'll see that God is at work answering cries for help. Alright, so first, God is at work even when we can't see it. I think you see this fairly vividly in verses 1 through 10. Right, God is always at work. He never stops His work of salvation. Uh, So as we start out, let's remember the context, right? The Israelites, we said this last week, Israelites, uh, they moved to Egypt, and it was friendly for a while. Uh, Joseph had sort of saved the world, and they were um, very kind to the the Israelites that were there. There was about 70 of them. But pretty soon they grow, and so Pharaoh uh, enslaves the Israelites. And then he puts them to work ruthlessly. And then when that doesn't stop them from growing as a people, um, he has the midwives... Kill, their, kill the baby boys as they're born. And then that plan sort of uh, falls apart a little bit. And then when it does, he issues this edict that we read at the very end of chapter 1 where he says, okay, he tells everybody, it's time for all the Hebrew boys to die. This edict of death. So now these Israelites, they're not just slaves, they're slaves and they're killing their children, their male children at least. And I want you to keep in mind who Israel is. This is God's chosen people. These are the people, uh, these are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The ones that God has said, I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to save the world through you. In other words, I'm going to make everything right in history. And I'm going to do it through your people. And yet... Here they are seemingly getting stamped out of existence. It's a very dark situation and it seems like there's no hope. So what in the world is going on? Why isn't God doing anything about it? They've been in Egypt for 430 something years. Right? That's way longer than the United States has existed. Why isn't God doing something? And I want you to see that that's the context of this story about Moses' birth. And what we do see is that God is doing something. And he's not just doing something, right? He's very purposefully, very carefully orchestrating everything to bring about salvation for his people. The whole account that we just read of Moses' birth is amazing. And And I want to sort of zero in on them for a minute. uh, Because I'm making the claim that God really is at work. So how how do you know that? How do you know that that God really is doing this? Right, well you've got this Hebrew, this Hebrew couple has a baby. And they, you know, they have this brand new boy. And they think that he's beautiful. And so they hide him. Right, they don't want to throw him in the Nile. So they hide him. Uh, for about three months, and then eventually, uh, you know, you just you can only hide a baby so long, I guess. And they, they're sort of their hand is forced; they have to do something, and so they um, they, they build a little basket. They build a basket and they cover it with tar, something like that, so it'll float. And they put the baby in the basket. 
And there's a little detail right there that's actually not so little that I want to I draw your attention to. That the word for basket, that we translate as basket, it shows up just a few more times in the scripture. And it's, uh, it's really just in three chapters. The only other time you ever see this Hebrew word is, is Genesis 6 through 9, which is the story of Noah and the ark. And it's, the, it's actually the, the word for ark. So with Noah, we translate it as ark, because basket would be odd, right? Build an enormous basket. <laughs> but it's the exact same word. It, uh, they cover it with the same thing. Noah covers his ark, his enormous basket, with um, this bitumen, or however you say that, and pitch. It's the exact same stuff that uh, Zipporah, uh, no, no, that's his wife, sorry, Moses' mother, uh, covers this with. So what's the point? God is connecting these two events for us. He's showing us that Moses is sort of a second Noah. Right? These two male children, uh, these men that God is saving from drowning in the water by being put in an ark so that they can go on and God can use them to save the world, to save His people. Right? It just screams that God is doing something very carefully. He's causing all these circumstances to go the right way. I mean, just, right, just hearing the passage, you can tell that it's... If, if you don't believe, you look at this, you say, that, there's some incredible coincidences here, right? I mean, he just... Uh, they, they put this baby in the river. Uh, it just happens to not get snapped up by a crocodile, which are all over the Nile. Um, it just happens to stay afloat. It just happens to find its way uh, to where um, the daughter of the Pharaoh is bathing and the sister gets positioned just in the right place and the daughter of Pharaoh is just so predisposed to uh, open this basket and her heart is inclined to it and she speaks to the sister and happens to ask the sister, hey, uh, actually I guess the sister says, would you like for me to get someone to nurse this for you? And she says, yes, and I'll pay them for it. So Moses' own mother gets to raise him for his first few years of life, and she gets paid to do it, all so that Moses gets to go and live in in the living room of the Pharaoh and grow up and get the best education in the world and the best training in the world, all so that he can deliver his people from Pharaoh. God is at work. It's amazing. All right, so let's try to begin to apply that to us because you might be thinking like, yeah, yeah, but this is Moses, right? Moses is in the Bible. Of course, it, it all works out for him. But what about real life? And here's what I want you to keep in mind. I want you to think about this from the rest of Israel's perspective. Because, yeah, we're, we're getting this sort of, a, you know, outside look at this, right? But for everybody else, while this was happening... It looked like nothing was happening. Right? Even if people knew about Moses, which I, I doubt, right? Knew that Moses um, had been you know, taken by the Pharaoh's daughter and lived in the... Even if they knew about that, it's 80 years from when Moses is going to uh, lead his people out. 
So if you're there as a slave in Egypt, you look around and it doesn't look like God is doing anything. He seems very absent, very silent. Right? If you'll notice, God's name doesn't even show up in the passage until the very end. And I think that's sort of the point. It's trying to draw us into the text because it very much feels like God's not here. He's not doing anything. But what I want you to see is that God's always at work even when we can't see it. I'll give you a quick story that I came across. In, this is from 1662, so not the most recent story, but uh, England's parliament passed something called the Act of Uniformity, which said that all the ministers in England had to uh, conform to the Book of Common Prayer. And if they didn't, they were uh, forced out of their churches and out of London. And so there were evidently uh, about 2,000 ministers were forced out of their churches and therefore out of their jobs and were subjected to poverty. And it was a very dark day. Why would God do something like that? But three years later, in 1665, there was a plague in London. About 6,000 people a week were dying. It's unbelievable. And with all these people dying, most of the ministers that still lived there either died or ran away. But what happened was that uh, most of those 2,000-some-odd ministers that had been basically exiled from London uh, as the plague was ending, they were able to come back in and minister to those that were sick and dying and, uh, and or had lost their families. And they were able to preach the gospel to these people. And because that happened, this great revival broke out in England. Right? God is always at work even when you can't see it. And look, as you look around the world, and even at your own life, there's no doubt that it's easy to wonder, where, where is God in the midst of all this? Why isn't God doing something? Right? You look around and there's terrorism, and there's ISIS, and there's sex trafficking, and sex scandals, and crooked politics... Uh, there's death, there's oppression, racism, right? And we could go on and on. And then you get closer to home, you narrow it down to yourself, and your, your family's falling apart. Uh, you, were, uh, you were abused in some way. You got sick. You lost, you lost money. You lost your scholarship. You get fired from your job. You got broken up with. Why doesn't God do something? I got a text message from... Man, all right. I got a text message from a friend of mine when I was sitting in the car when I just pulled up to this. And she said, what I don't get is why God doesn't fix it. Why didn't God stop it from happening? Because I had trouble walking for a whole week and I had to lie about the bruise on my face. So where was God? Why wasn't He doing something? And look, what I want you to see is that 
the Bible recognizes that. The Bible recognizes those times. And they can be long stretches. And the Bible says, essentially it says to you, yeah, those are real. You're not crazy for feeling like that. But it also says, at the same time, God is still at work. He is at work, even if you can't see it. And the ultimate example of that is the cross. We're going to get to that in a minute. Man, we've got to keep moving. Secondly, I want you to see that God is at work even through sin and failure. God is at work even through sin and failure. Verses 11 through 22. Right In this section, we see that Moses has grown up. Now, we get a lot of this, by the way. We get some insight from Acts chapter 7, where Stephen gives this speech and he references Moses. And we learn a lot. But uh, he tells us that he's actually about, uh, this is 40, he's 40 when this uh, event in his life happens. So one day Moses, uh, he goes out and he wants to go sort of check on his people and uh, he sees this Egyptian beating up on this Hebrew. And he looks this way and that and he intervenes um, and he, he kills the guy. Um, Acts 7.25, evidently, I'll read it. It says, He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Right? Even before, so this is before the burning bush, right, which we're coming to. Even then, it seems like Moses had some idea that he was going to save his people, that he was some sort of liberator. He seems to think of himself in that, in that way. And so he goes out and he kills this Egyptian guy. He seems to be thinking like, I'm gonna, like here it is, here's my chance. I'm going to do it and everybody's going to be with me. And it just does not go like that. In fact, it seems like he screws up the whole plan. Because even if he was going to be the guy to help uh, Israel get out, right, it's over now because now Pharaoh wants to kill him. And so what does he have to do? Moses runs away out into the desert. He seems to be set to be the hero, but now he screwed it up. Sort of seems like he took matters in his own hand, and now he's a refugee out in the desert. He ends up exiled out in Midian, in the middle of nowhere, and he's out there for 40 years. But God seems to be doing something very purposeful in Moses' life even through his sin and failure. right? He ends up helping these women. He saves them from the shepherds. uh, And so they end up taking him back home. And his father-in-law, whose name is Reuel, uh, which means friend of God, his father-in-law is some sort of priest. And it seems like this guy in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, seems like he actually serves God. And so he ends up getting, you know, marrying into this family and evidently finding some, uh, some spiritual nurturing. And he ends up being a shepherd. Uh, Genesis 46 tells us that shepherds were an abomination to Egyptians. So think about this. Moses grew up in the lap of Egyptian luxury. And he thought he was going to be this you know, great hero, maybe. And now he is a a despised shepherd in the middle of nowhere. So what's God doing? Well, it seems like God really is working on him 
I think overall we could say that God's humbling Moses. He's humbling Moses. Because God needs, God doesn't need a, uh, a superman to show up and kick butt and take names and, you know, take over the Egyptians and bring out the people. That's not what God needs. God doesn't need more power. What he needs is somebody that's humble. He needs a leader that can look and recognize his own weakness and say, look to God to be the Savior. And that's exactly what God is working into Moses. He's taking the Egyptianism, right? Win by your own strength and your own power. He's taking it out of him. Um, where is it? Uh, I've lost it, but Numbers, somewhere. Somewhere in Numbers, it says that Moses is the most humble man on the earth. Right? God is doing something very purposefully. And it actually seems that Moses comes out better in some sense because of his sin and failure. Because God's at work through it. He's actually, in some way, better off for having failed because of how God works. I want to give you this incredible story, okay? This is one of the best illustrations you're ever going to get either here or anywhere. I didn't come up with it, but I'm going to give it to you. Uh, are you familiar with Wynton Marsalis? Marsalis family, uh, jazz mus- musicians. Uh, so Wynton Marsalis is one of the best trumpeters ever, right? Um, and this is a story from, the, uh, from early 2000s. Uh, basically, he kind of went through this stretch in life where he sort of got depressed and sort of disillusioned, and he ends up in this, uh, as one of the best trumpeters in the world, he ends up in this kind of small club. It's kind of nondescript, playing with this kind of not very big deal band, off to the side. And uh, there's this great article you can read, uh, I think it was in the Atlantic, read about it. And so this journalist goes to this club, and as he's sitting there, he looks, and he he thinks, "Is, is that Wynton Marsalis? And he asked the guy next to him, is that Wynton Marsalis? And the guy next to him says, like, um, there's no way that's who that is. Like, obviously not. But the more he looks, the more he realizes, this is Wynton Marsalis. This is the greatest, maybe the greatest jazz musician alive. And I'm getting to see him in this little tiny venue up close. And every once in a while, he would have these, uh, these trumpet solos, and they would just be unbelievable. Right? Imagine getting to see your favorite musician, you know, in this small environment. And in the, in the middle of one of these just beautiful, amazing solos, some redneck cell phone goes off. This just like awful ringtone just starts piercing through his solo. And so much so that he stops. And the, the journalist says he wrote down in his notes that he was taking magic ruined. But he said as soon as he wrote that, Winton picks his trumpet back up to his lips and he starts playing the ringtone. Note for note. And he plays it again and again. And then he begins like one note at a time, slowly tweaking it. He plays it again with a slightly different tweak, a little bit different, changes keys, and he works it back to 
to playing what he was playing exactly where he left off when the ringtone broke in. Unimaginable. Right? So do you see the point? This, right, the night was ruined. This, this guy screwed it up. And yet somehow, because of that screw up, what you saw was something even more amazing. That that night was somehow more magical because of this enormous failure. And what it points you to is that it shows you even more how great the, the master is, right? You walk out of there thinking, that guy's he's so much better than, than I ever thought. And it's all because of how he was able to deal with this terrible screw-up, this failure. right? Moses' cell phone, he forgot to put his cell phone on silent in the biggest way possible. And God uses it. And He humbles him. So what about us? Look, if you're a believer, this should be an enormous comfort to know that God is always at work. Even in your sin and your failure. Even in your low points. Right? We tend to think that God is at work um, when things are going well. Right? When you, um, when you see victory, uh, when you don't, you've, you, you don't do that thing that you've been doing. And you see some things, you say, God is at work. I see it. And you feel confident in it. When you talk to somebody about Jesus and you walk away, you think, God is at work. That's right. But what about, what about when you totally blow it? I'm going to guess, if you're like me, you probably don't really think to yourself, at least not naturally, God's at work. But do you see that good news? That somehow, in some way, God is at work. That He can work you into something better in some ways because of it. Right? When you, when you do that thing again that you swore you would not do. That when you... When you betray your friend again, God is at work. When your grades bottom out, God is just as much at work. Now look, that doesn't mean that we don't worry about sin and we don't fight against it. We say, well, hey, just do whatever I want to. God's at work. Of course not. But look, you can know that even in the midst of your worst times, God's plan is not derailed. I've got a great illustration about how our lives are like a tapestry from the backside, which is what we see, right? It's all, you know... It doesn't look like anything, but you flip it around and it's beautiful, but we don't have time to do that one. We've got to finish with our uh, third point. Our third point. God is at work answering cries for help. We have to do this very quickly. Um, even here, uh, in the timing of everything, we see that God is masterfully at work behind the scenes. Um, so God, uh, Moses is in exile for 40 years, and at the same time, sometime during that, uh, the Pharaoh dies, and so Moses is able to come back. And, and God's going to use him. But what I want you to see is that, that God is at work to respond to cries for help. Um, Israel, his people are in a position to do nothing more than just to cry out. And God responds. He hears 
his people. And he moves towards them. Right? I, I couldn't find the exact stats, but um, maybe you've heard that a, a mother, especially, now there's some research too about fathers, but a mother especially can pick out her child's cry out of like, I want to say what I heard was like out of 75 other babies. Like you can listen to 75 babies crying. One of them is hers. She can tell you which one. Right? And that's, that's sort of the picture you get. That God is tuned to His people. And when they cry out, He hears. Right? Listen to the God's actions in that last section. God heard. He remembered. He saw. He knew. Right? When the Bible talks about God remembering, it's, I think this is obvious, but it's not like He's like, oh yeah, I did make those promises. When it talks about Him remembering the, the focused ideas on His actions um, that result from that. Right, that God is going to do something about his, the commitment that He's made. He bound Himself in covenant to His people. He said, I promise to do this and I will. And they cry out to Him and He acts because of His covenant. He's making good on it because He loves them and He loves us. The same is true for us. Right, because you and I have a... We get the advantage of having an even greater understanding of what this means. Because the same promises are true for us and we can know that that God is going to keep them and that He is always at work because of Jesus. Because of the cross. And that's what we're going to end with. The ultimate remembering of God's covenant happens on the cross. I'll just end with this uh, thought. How can you and I know that God will hear our cries? How can I... What do I tell my friend? What do I tell myself and what do you tell yourself when you say, but, but what about me? How can I know God really is at work and He hadn't just left me? Because I want Him to be at work. Here it is. You can know that God is at work answering your cries for help because He didn't answer Jesus's. Because on the cross, Jesus cries out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you not doing anything? Where are you? And God's answer, do you know what God says back? Nothing. Nothing but wrath. Because He was taking our place. So that when you and when I cry out to God, God, where are you? Please do something. We can know that He will and that He is. We can know that God is at work because He loves us. So much so that He'd give Himself for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an almost unbelievable truth. Jesus, thank You for um, enduring the cross because of the joy that was set before You. We pray this in Your name. Amen.